Welcome to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Hospitality is a no-holds-barred indie thriller with compellingly memorable characters and a healthy dose of Americana pulp. It's not horror per se, but it utilizes a number of horror elements which really effectively flavor this southern fried neo-noir with a fun, enjoyable eeriness. I sat down with writer-director duo David Guglielmo, dude, I'm so sorry if I'm pronouncing your name wrong, and Nick Chakwin, who were kind enough to take us through their journey on getting hospitality, their second film, off of the ground and into a theatrical release. Along the way, we dug into details about how they broke into filmmaking and had a great chat that really ended up loaded with gems of insight for aspiring indie filmmakers. We got into everything from the directing and writing processes, along with tips for getting your script into the hands of the right producers. Lots of great advice in here. You might want to take notes on this one. I had a great time meeting them. Hope you enjoy listening to them. Here are Nick Chakwin and David Guglielmo. And David, I'm so sorry if I'm pronouncing your name wrong. So how's everything going with hospitality? I uh, got to see it last night. Really, really enjoyed it a lot. It was uh, just really, really fun, slow burn kind of thriller. And uh, yeah, man, I love the characters and everything. So can you, can you give me a sense of how this all, how the project came about? Yeah. So Nick and I uh, made our first film called No Way to Live. Completely grassroots. You know, we 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 raised the money. Uh, we shot it over a period of six months, uh, just kind of piecing it together, not knowing if it was ever going to become a feature. <clears throat> um, you know, but doing everything we could to complete it, and that process just. I think from writing the script to getting distribution was four years. So we learned more than we ever did in film school. And uh, we're really proud of the film. It's available on Amazon Prime right now. But um, interestingly enough, it was the opposite. You know, it it happened very quickly. We wrote the script in four days, um, just in a a real, you know, creative space. Just It just came out and we were like, oh, wow, this is this is really cool. Let's, uh, you know, let's send out some emails to producers that we admire. And, um, within a week we had a green light from, from Howard at can do films. And he was just coming off his, uh, his Academy award nomination. So, uh, you know, we were really thrilled. And a month later we were shooting, we only had 13 days to do this. It's an ultra low budget movie. Um, wow. So yeah, it was just kind of like, you know, run and gun, uh, before we knew it, we had our second film. <laughs> That's awesome. The, yeah. the, um, the characters or the actors really seem to have a really natural chemistry. Did you guys do a lot of rehearsing? Um, no, we, we actually didn't really, we weren't, um, afforded that, um, unfortunately because of the, you know, nature of the budget and the time frame we were working with. Um, you know, so it kind of was just luck that, that they all, you know, get along so well and have the chemistry that they do. I think we had, you know, maybe just one table read and then we were on set. Um, with that said, Emmanuel and JR, they are good friends. They're, they've been friends for, I think, years and years. So that like 20 was, years, yeah, maybe yeah. 20 years. So that oh, was wow. a really great asset for us because they were just so comfortable with each other. And so we were able to use that um, in the scene work. But um you know, like, like between Emmanuel and Sam, that was just, sometimes it just clicks, you know, and, and it really clicked with right. them and, and that's just worth its weight in gold. So. Well, it was like summer camp, man. Like, honestly, when we were, yeah. when we were there, everyone was best friends. Like it was just, it was really a lot of fun. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah I mean, you could tell that that chemistry was super duper strong. So you guys have, um, are you, you guys both have a history of, of, um, of being casting agents, right? No, just David. Just David. That's oh, just David. David. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. What what happened there was that uh, because No Way to Live took so long to get going, you know, we we had hired uh, a casting director by the name of Matthew LaSalle, um, who's great, and um, we lost the money. At one point, we had like half a million dollars to make No Way to Live. And then the guy was like, oh, I just found out that, you know, indie films uh, don't really make money. It's a risk. And I was like, well, yeah. Holy shit. (laughs) So he pulled the rug out and we had no money. And and while we were, 
raising, you know, a thousand bucks here and there to make the movie. Matt was so great. And he was like, look, you don't have to pay me again. Just like I'm with you whenever you need me to send out an offer, you know, let's just get the movie done. So, um, I became close with him and, and afterwards he said, why don't you, you know, come work as my assistant because I had quit my job to make the movie. You know, I was working at a juice bar and I, and I thought I was going to have to go and get another job at a bar or something. And he was like, well, look, you're like a human IMDb, you know, every actor, that's what you need. I'll teach you programs, you know? So I became his assistant and then eventually worked my way up to associate. And, um, then I, I just, I was like, well, I can do this. You know, I know so many producers just from being in indie film. So I just declared myself a casting director and I started getting work. So for the past nice. two or three years, I've been, yeah, I've been a casting director. That's awesome. I mean, I'd imagine that would just give you such a front row seat to observing how other producers work and operate, not to mention the networking element of it all. I mean, that sounds like it's a really smart and instrumental step towards becoming a director or producer. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's. I always tell people and I always believe that there is no one way to to do this. There's no one, you know, route right. to, you know, making movies. And, and I just love to be a part of movies in any capacity. I mean, I really love casting. I love casting. I love producing. I mean, eventually Nick and I are going to start producing, um, in our company that we're, that we're doing now. And, you know, I just, I just want to see good stuff get made. And, and I yeah. kind of have a corner now on, on the indie market and, and also horror because I'm the head of casting for Fangoria. Um, so the stuff that they bring to me is just like, you know, up and coming emerging artists, uh, a lot of the times, uh, female filmmakers and they're making really cool horror movies and it's fresh and it's exciting. And, you know, that's, I just, I want to be a part of that. Yeah. Yeah. And horror is just such an exciting genre right now. I mean, I've always clearly been a huge horror fan, but horror as an industry always goes up during times of social unrest. And it's usually when some of the smartest horror movies get made and the most iconic. The sure. 50s was the age of the atomic era, so that's why you had all those monster movies. And now, I, th- I mean, obviously the kind of quintessential movie as far as today and horror in terms of social unrest is definitely Get Out. But um, I think we're going to see more and more really interesting kind of biting titles coming out Absolutely. that are just really of where we're at right now. Yeah, it's an exciting time for horror. Hey, have you read, there's a book by David J. Skull and it's really great. It's called The Monster Show. And it's all about that. Yeah. You have to read it. It's all about that. It goes through every decade and it kind of examines these movies that they may not have even known that they were, you know, having social commentary. It was just kind of a gut reaction to whatever was going right. on. And uh, yeah, it's really comprehensive. It's really easy to read. He's a great author. He wrote uh, a book on Todd Browning, uh, a biography on Todd Browning. Wow. Yeah. You got to check it out. Uh, It's called the, I never found that before. That's awesome. The monster show book, right? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Another good one is is, uh, shock value. And it's all about the history, like the history of recent horror movies. I think in the past like 30 years. Yeah. That was the one they had a diploma chapter in there and everything. Yeah, that was yeah, a really like good one. <laughs> yeah, that was cool. I think one of the most fascinating and I think helpful pieces of advice and also just things I've observed from talking to multiple people is kind of being in positions where you can make a lateral move into directing or producing where you start with some sort of other position. For me, I'm always the kind of person that if if I, if I am an assistant um, – you know, I'm the assistant that, that, you know, conveniently leaves the script on the, uh, you know, on the desk of the boss. <laughs> um, I don't care. I don't care. Like I'll, I'll, you know, I'll always do that. I'll always send the emails. I'll always follow up on the emails. Hey, did you see this? You know, until I get a response. Um, because, you know, because I believe that the stuff that I'm, that I'm giving them is actually an opportunity for them. Uh, I, I really believe in the work. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I think, I think there's always, there's always a way in and, and I think it starts with, uh, you know, making sure the work is ready and believing in yourself. Right. Right. And just kind of being ready for that opportunity when it comes, having the scripts ready to go and, you know, like that. Yeah. Yeah. So you guys are, um, I mean, clearly a directorial and writing and producing team. And, uh, it seems like it's kind of rare that there can be kind of such dynamic partnerships. And I was just wondering what's, what did you guys find to be the key to your collaboration? Um, 
Well, I think I think the first thing would probably be the communication. Being on the same page is really really key. You know, especially when we're writing and and especially when we're on set directing. You know, we need to be one voice, one unified uh, point of view. So mm-hmm. what what we do to get there is is just to always be co- talking and always be, you know, on the same page, brainstorming and, you know, um, balancing ideas back and forth so that when we get to the point of someone else coming in, whether it's an actor or a producer asking, you know, questions, we both know what we're the, the same answer. We're both going to say the same thing um, because we've already talked, talked that through and, and uh, you know, debated about it and figured out how we feel. Um I, you know, what would you say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, Nick and I are best friends and and um, we're always just in contact, talking about everything. Um, and I think that our personalities uh, balance each other out uh, mm. in a nice way that you can't plan. That's not something, it just has to happen. Um, right. And uh, we like the same stuff, you know. If I see a movie that I think is great or I read a book that I think is great, I'll give it to him and we'll just kind of trade stuff back and forth. So I think, you know, creatively we're on the same wavelength and um, and we're both really excited, you know. And, and I, think that, right. I think that that's something that's really gone a long way. The actors, you know, we're paying these actors $100 a day to do this movie. If we're not excited about it and if we don't have that passion kind of seeping out through every core – they're not going to do it because there's just no other reason. I mean, um, it's, it's contagious, you know, and we're just like right now I have to pinch myself. I mean, I have a movie that's in theaters, you know, it's playing at universal city walk right now. Uh, I've been going like every other night I've been going and just sitting with an audience just to hear them react. Um, it's just, you know, I'm living my best life. (laughs) And how has that process been sitting and, and experiencing the film with an audience? It's so cool. I mean, you know, the other day, actually, I left when I walked out of the theater, I went up to a stranger and I just said, hey, what, what did you think of that? And he was like, yeah, it was cool. It was good. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> you know, I want like, I want to know what the general public thinks. It's like, we're so the film industry is the, this bubble, you know, and um, I think that they judge movies differently. And I think that I, I don't really want to talk to, you know, people in the industry all the time. I want to go to the mall and I want to ask you know, people right. think what they thought, because that's, you know, that's America and that's the world, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's really interesting. And I think it's important to kind of be in touch with your audience instead of being in just this insulated kind of echo chamber of the film industry, so to speak. I mean, it's probably wise to do both, but I think having a foot in, in culture and in people and in your overall audience is, is a huge step. I, I, I do marketing work as well these people they don't they have no idea what a high concept thriller is or whatever these terms right. are using you know they just want to be entertained <coughs> and in the end of the day i think i think um you know uh our movies work in that way we've had terrible terrible festival uh reception you know we never got into a big festival or any festival with no way to live or this movie um and i always hear from agents and everyone you know all their thoughts and you know what they think could be better about it and all that stuff but then you you sit a bunch of people down uh you know that just want to be entertained and they're reacting they're vocally reacting and they they love the twist and and you know i i think in the end of the day we we we're trying we're thinking from a marketing perspective um and they're not they don't care they don't care what genre it is they just want to have a good time Um, and I want to stay in that headspace. I try not to, you know, you want to be savvy with like the kind of stuff you're putting out to make sure it's marketable and you know, that you're going to make money. But I I really, I I think keeping the the general audience in mind is, is important. Nice. So for kind of budding filmmakers who want to get their first feature off the ground and they're just kind of overwhelmed by the amount of information out there and all the conflicting advice, what was the what was some of the most formidable advice that you guys were given that really enabled you to get your first movie off the ground so that you had a calling card and that you had something done and that you were really able to, to kind of that get this part of your career rocking and rolling? Like what right. was the most formidable advice that you guys received during that beginning stage? Yeah, yeah. Well well once once we had the script that we knew to be the one that we wanted to do first, that we really believed in, once we had the writing done. Um, I remember a time where we were just, you know, after, 
actually, while we were still raising the money, when the first amount of money, we were trying to get to half a million. We were working with this young producer guy. And, um, you know, we we had this number in mind. We were like, we have to raise X num- amount of money to pull a trigger and shoot the film. And we were sending emails out, you know, that looked like spam. We're like, we just need $5,000 more. We just need 10000 And I just remember like getting advice from a, a filmmaker, a director friend being like, pull a trigger. Like, you don't, what do you, why do you need that? You don't need that. Go shoot, like shoot with what you have. And we were like, wait, what? Like we had this whole idea because we got one budget from one, you know, line producer. And that's just really not the case. You can, you can get 3000 different budgets from 3000 different producers. You, you know, you just need to pull the trigger with what you have. If you're, you know, if you have some money raised, I think people spend years waiting to hit the magic number, you know? So that was an eye opener for us. Um, you know, and, and just, just hitting the pavement, you know, like that, that first year, or I guess it was a couple of years, but that beginning period, we were crazy. We were just emailing everyone and calling people that we haven't met, bothering everyone. You know, we probably burned so many bridges, but like, who cares? We were just so <laughs> rabid trying to get this movie going because we just really believed in it. And um, I think you need that passion. Like you just, you really need that, um, you know, because because you can, you know, it's it's easier than ever to get your hands on a camera. Yeah. You know, you'll hear that. But, um, it, you know, that's for, you know, that's, there's a reason that people say that. It's just, um, I mean, what do you think? Yeah, you no, exactly. I mean, you know, I'm the, I'm the kind of, I'm trying to be smarter, a little smarter with money. But I'm the kind of guy who, if we wrote another No Way to Live or hospitality, something like, you know, that we were so passionate about today and nobody wanted to do it. Like I would look into my savings account and just be like, all right, like, <laughs> and just put it right into yeah. the movie. You know, like that's just, I'm so, I'm always so close to that. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think, you know, risks pay off. Right. Um, there's, there's another, there's an alternate reality here where we have oh, man, you cut half out for a movie. You know, we only have half of No Way to Live and and, and we w- wasted, you know, $80,000 or something like that. There's that. That was always a, a possibility. Um, so I think the, adv- you know, the advice is not to be reckless, but to just make sure that you're, you're in that headspace. You don't actually have to do it, but you, you, you know, why? Cause there's so much content out there and people are going to ask right. you why, why did this movie need to be made? Is it just because you want to make a movie? Is it ego? Is it, well, I mean, what is it? And it's, and the answer should be, no, this is the story that I need to tell. Right. Right. It just should be this burning kind of unexplainable desire to, to tell that, to tell that story. We're, we're, we're in a, we're in a place right now where I think that, um, you know, they, that's usually equated with something that's like autobiographical. It's, you know, it's your exact story and it's not the case, you know, everything's autobiographical. If you wrote it, everything has you in it. And I, and I think that sometimes it takes a little more convincing for us because we're making movies that are so far away from our life experience you know, we're making right. a movie in the fifties or we're making a movie about a woman who used to be a prostitute, you know, and, and people kind of look at you sideways, like, really, this is the story, but it's like, you know, we have, yes, this is the story. <laughs> yeah. Well, that touches on an interesting point. I mean, there's that really terrible piece of advice to write what you know, but um, obviously if you've never been an astronaut before, you, you, nobody could have written 2001 a space odyssey you know so when you guys are approaching subject matter that you don't have direct experience with what is your research process like well i think people take right what you know and they and they interpret it the wrong way i think yeah you're completely right like don't write what you know doesn't mean write the story of two guys from new jersey and connecticut you know it's like that's not a movie that we want to watch you know, it's like, write The feelings, you know, and, and the, you know, the experiences that you've had can translate into different characters and different time periods. And, you know, it's just writing with uh, a genuine uh, nature to it. Yeah. I mean, for me, this, these worlds are worlds that I immerse myself in, you know, whether it be with classic movies or with literature, you know, and, and an LA Times review just came out for hospitality and they compared it to James M. Cain. And it's like, well, then 
Yes, obviously I'm writing what I know because he's my favorite author. Postman Arizona Twice is my favorite book of all time. And the fact that he just got that with there being no actual literal reference in there. He just got wow. it from he just got it from the vibe. So, you know, that's translating and uh I guess I am writing what I know. Hmm. That's really really cool. Yeah, one thing that you touched on earlier um, reminded me of, I just did an interview with, uh, with Bill Lustig, the director of yeah. Maniac from uh, 1979. Awesome, awesome guy. But one yeah. thing that he mentioned when he was doing Maniac, the way that he started to get producers on board was he just started filming. And the fact that he had built some momentum, some semblance of like footage in the can, that's when directors realize, okay, this is a real tangible movie because there's so many people walking around with, oh, I got an idea or, oh, I got a script. But he said that when he started filming, that's when all the other producers, like the major producers, started jumping on board because he had something tangible. And he demonstrated to them that he actually has the ability and gravitas to, to start making something, to do something tangible instead of just having this kind of conceptual idea. Uh, but, yeah, the, the way he phrased it is you got to get the train out of the station. And then that's yeah. when – all the other director or all the other producers start jumping on board. Yeah, that's what we did. I mean, yeah. we did that with No Way to Live. When, every time we shot something, we cut it together and we made kind of like a sizzle reel. It was almost like a fake trailer for the movie. And once we did that, it was proof of concept. Now everyone was like, oh, okay, I see what you're, what you're going for. This looks like a cool movie, you know, and, and it definitely helped us raise money. Um, we even did that before we started shooting. I think yeah. we, you know, we would tell people, you know, if we had a meeting and it went well and with the guy in New York, we'd, we would, you know, be like, oh, okay, we'd bring that, that, that back to LA and say, you know, we've got a guy in New York that's, you know, thinking about putting this money in. And, and then <laughs> the guy's just like, whoa, really? You know, and we yeah. just, yeah, our own momentum, even if we had none, just, you know. I, yeah, you always want to, you always want to make it like the train is leaving the station because it is, because the thing is whoever we reach out to, we're not contingent on, on that person. You know, we're going to make this movie no matter what it's like, do you want to be a part of this? You know, if not, like we're still making it, we're not going to just wait around. Right. And I think creating that urgency, it seems like that that is really effective and starting to get people to jump on board. Totally. Hundred um, percent. Would love to talk about your um, your writing process. Obviously, you guys are really, really collaborative when it comes to approaching a script. You guys, you said that you were able to knock out the first draft in four days. How do you guys approach collaborative writing? So when we first started writing features separately, we would send them to each other for advice, and we were, we were friends in college. And then when I moved out here, we kept doing that. And then you know. Um, when David decided to move to LA, he, you know, he crashed on my couch for a couple of weeks while he was looking for an apartment. And that's when we started writing together because we were under one roof and we we're like, let's just, you know, we we're both in between scripts. We we're like, let's just try one. And, um, so those first few scripts like that, we were actually literally in the same room kind of passing the laptop back and forth. And it was totally like nerve wracking for me because I, I, I used to, I used to outline, <laughs> I used to like really yeah. do a lot of work before writing and David doesn't outline. And so for me, it was like jumping in the deep end. I was like, like pass the laptop. Okay, go write. And I'm just like, oh shit, you know? So right. it was a very cool, um, uh, awakening in a way to just change my writing process. But, um, yeah, so we, that kind of graduated to, uh, emailing scripts back and forth more like normal people, I guess, but we still like to keep the, you know, the idea of passing back and forth and trying to, you know, surprise each other, but, you know, s stay within the same tone and, and kind of just slowly pave each other's work over. So it, it's one voice and, um, and yeah, it work. I mean, it works for us. It, yeah. It works in a nice way because basically <clears throat> if we're doing five pages each a day and that's minimum, that's like the rule you have to do at least five. Um, when uh, Nick sends me his five, I'm going back I'm kind of, you know, looking over his, I'm smoothing out the five he gave me and then I'm writing my five and then I send it back to him. He smooths out my five and then he writes another five. So by the time you have a first draft, you're, you're basically on your second draft, you know, mm. your first draft is kind of like ready to, to be seen. Um, and yeah, That's no, I never, yeah, it's, 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 it works. And, and I never outline, um, and I, and I don't think there's anything wrong with writing do i think most writers do most writers i love do 
But um, for me, it, uh, it's always uh, come off as a little contrived. Uh, if I have to fit the characters in the places that I've kind of, you know, predetermined they were, they're going to go. Um, and I, and I, I often say this, uh, because I think it's interesting, but for hospitality, whenever someone showed up at the door, I didn't know if they were good or bad. They had to show Mm me. Um, and you know, I wasn't sure if Cam, the Sam Trammell role, I wasn't sure if he was going to be a good guy or a bad guy. I wasn't sure if she was going to stay with him in the end. Um, you know, it just, they have to show you who they are. And then an interesting thing happens because there's this kind of real, you know, this murky, this gray area where he's not all good or all bad. He's, he's just him. And, um, and I think that in the end, when she, you know, spoiler alert, when she does what she does and she leaves, I think that you, you, nobody goes, oh, I saw that coming because I didn't see it coming. So, you know, there's no way. Right. No, that's really cool. And I've heard that there's a lot of, a lot of writers, well, there's a number of writers who do write with an outline, like James Patterson, and then there's a number of ones who don't. And Tarantino specifically talks about how he'll just create a scenario He'll know his characters. He'll put them in a room together, and he'll just watch the drama unfold. He'll just simply exactly observe. Yeah, that's exactly what I do. Yeah, yeah, and and it's funny because then you're not even there's a you're not even doing it. Sometimes, right. uh, sometimes characters will say things that you've never even thought of or said. You know, it's it's just it's kind of a an out of body experience. It's really right. Cool. It's like, where the hell did that come from? Yeah, yeah, it's really really cool. That's cool. Nick, do you still outline or do you guys both just kind of at this point let everything unfold? Uh, don't tell David, but <laughs> yeah, no, I, I still do a little outlining. Um, not nearly as much as I used to, um, but I do love writing. I don't know. I love writing a first draft um, in a notebook with a pen. We don't really work that way. We start with a laptop, but I think, you know, I do like there is something you get when you write with pen and notebook because you just kind of like let your brain just, you know, spill. And like, uh, even if you don't like something, maybe you cross it out with one line and keep going. And then when you go back, you can kind of see your first idea with the computer, you know, there's a, there's a tendency to look at it like the final draft and you just kind of form, you know, you delete and make it look clean. And, um, I like a little mess in the beginning. Um, so yeah, I kind of do it on the side a little bit. Um, but I've definitely done it way less now that I work with David. <laughs> well, in, yeah. I mean, I started off doing the same thing, writing longhand. We were both writing longhand. We started collaborating that way. And then it was like, I can't read your fucking handwriting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is never going to work. <laughs> right. <laughs> so we trained ourselves to work on the laptop. But but you do have to resist the kind of, right, the editing, the the finality of it all. You know, right. um, you do have to have to resist that. And, um, I'm sure some of the stuff we've deleted, uh, you know, could have been good. It was just like in the moment you're, you're thinking it's not good enough, you know? Well, that's also yeah. part of the process is, um, checking each other. You know, you like with co-writing, you have to have little, little rules, you know, where say I put a joke in or something that's supposed to be funny or whatever. And, um, David's like, that's not funny. You know, like I have, I have a chance to like kind of try again, you know, like explain it or, you know, let it live for a little longer. But if it doesn't work after that, it just goes away, you know, and that way yeah. you just, you're not precious with, with anything, you know, uh, it's healthier that way. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, I, I, it sounds like having a writing partner can be a real game changer for aspiring writers because I mean, on top of everything else, like you'd mentioned, one draft or the first draft automatically becomes the second draft because you both are kind of polishing each other's work, but also the accountability factor. I mean, the fact that you guys agree to a quota, it's five pages a day. We each have to do it. It's I'm sure that that is way more motivating than just telling yourself if you're writing alone, Hey, I got to write five pages a day. I got to write five pages tomorrow. It's like, no, my writing partner wrote five pages a day. I better write five pages or I'm going to shit. Yeah. It's going to the gym. It's the same thing. Right. You know, that's right. it. When, you know, so many times if you're going alone, not only can you just say, oh, I'm tired today and not go. You're not going to say that if the guy's in front of your house with the car, you know, beeping the horn. Uh, exactly. But but also, you know, if I go to the gym alone, you know, I leave after 15 minutes, you know, like you need someone there <laughs> to be like, no, 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 we're doing our hour, you know. And that's the same thing. Yeah, it keeps you disciplined. And it's also, you know, sometimes sometimes you need just a bouncing board of ideas, you know. You need, you need to uh, – 
you need to just say it out loud because in your head it can get a little um it, it basically takes a process that's very introverting and makes it not as introverted interesting yeah so one of the things that uh, Emmanuel had mentioned on an interview is that you guys are very collaborative with actors when you're when you're on set. And I, there's certain movies where you can tell that there was collaboration between the directors and the actors. There's just like a kind of natural, very realistic flow. I mean, Scorsese allows a lot of actors to just come up with ideas on the spot and try different things and do like a little bit of improv and... Um, I think it's it's in certain cases just seems to create this very real and natural magic, and it, but it also at the same time seems like it's really important for indie films to do that. And as much as you can't be too precious about delivering the line exactly as you saw it in your own head, but uh, could you talk about your approach to to collaborating with actors and how that's uh, and whether or not it's it's helped serve the films? Yeah, yeah, um, you know, I think that. If the actors have a lot of questions, it goes back to the script and obviously something isn't working with the script. I think that it should be very self-explanatory. Um, good writing is, is um, you know, it's like I really believe in, in kind of the David Mamet school of just like, you know, it's there. It's all there for you. Um you know, having said that, if uh, an actor comes with an idea, you know, maybe that idea is better than yours. Maybe, right. you know, so we're definitely open to collaborating, um, but there should be no confusion as to what is the original intention. Now, if we want to, you know, go different places from there, that's a whole other story and we're open to hearing that. But at the same time, you have to put your foot down sometimes and say no. Yeah. Um so, you know, I think that you have to just, you have to go with your gut. There, there, nobody can be sensitive. You have to just talk everything out because sometimes actors come to you with ideas that are just wild. You know, it's so different. I'm like, mm -hmm. well, that seems cool, but that's a different, that's a different character, you know? Right. Um, and uh, yeah, in the end of the day, I mean, that's why everyone says casting is, you know, 80% of the work or whatever it really is, you know? And, and um I think that you just have to make sure everyone's on the same page. And even when I'm casting for other people, I'm like, look, have a Skype conversation with them. Make sure you're on the same page. Right. Um, because like once you are, then, then it's smooth sailing. If you're not, it's going to be friction the whole way. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Well, as a, uh, as a casting director, do you have any kind of unique approaches to casting? For instance, are there any different elements of the audition process that, may or may not be as common. How do you approach casting your actors considering your yeah. kind of insider knowledge? Yeah, I think what I do differently just from being into di in different casting offices and seeing how, how other casting directors work is that when I'm auditioning an actor, I'm acting with them. Um, and, and I think that a lot of people, maybe they're embarrassed and they don't want to do that, but it's like you get so much better work. Um, you know, <laughs> they can't act with a brick wall. Um, and when I hear these casting directors doing it in this monotone way, I'm like, you're not helping anyone. You're not giving them anything. So I really, I think actors are surprised by that. You know, I'm off book. I'm off book for all the sides. Uh, I don't need to hold them or anything. And I just really engage. I really look at them and engage and I, and I act with them. Um, and it's not because I think I'm a great actor. It's just, it's because, you know, like I want, I want them to see, I want the director to see the closest thing to what the movie is going to be. Um, and, uh, yeah. And then when you do that, I think that does translate over to when I direct and it definitely translates to when I write, you know, acting is really important for a writer director. I, I always say that writing is the same thing as acting. It's just one is in front of the camera and one's not. Right. But, but when the characters, you have to inhabit those characters, you have to be in those headspaces. And when that character is feeling something you should be feeling that same exact thing and like i take it to the point of if i'm not about to cry while i'm writing that that crying scene maybe that character shouldn't be crying you know like because sometimes you read scripts and you're like whoa they, this person doesn't understand emotions you just went from right. this emotion all the way over to this emotion in a second it doesn't go like that it's a gradual thing or whatever it is you know i mean uh i, I think yeah, I think that having an understanding of acting and of emotions just helps 
as a casting director, as a writer, as a director, as everything. I mean, you know, and then when you talk to them and you talk to those actors, they know that you get it and, right. and they appreciate that. I probably feel like they're in good hands. No, it's pretty fascinating. It reminds me of there was an art, there was an interview with, again, Quentin Tarantino a few years ago where they talk about his approach to what he calls method writing, where he just mm-hmm. becomes the characters as he's writing them. And he mentioned when he was writing Jackie Brown, he, he became Ordell Roby for like a year. I was just walking around <laughs> pretending that he was Ordell for a year. I think he did some interviews and he kind of acting that way. And you can, you can kind of tell, but um, yeah, I think there's something really integral about getting in, in touch with the overall headspace of the characters as you're writing. Yeah, absolutely. And he's, and I'm such a giant, giant fan of, of Tarantino and basically everything he does. I think he's such a true, I think he's the greatest artist we have. Yeah. Um, But I think what you were saying, I think what he means too, when, you know, it's like all about empathy, you know, it's like having empathy for each character and coming from their point of view, whether it's a good guy or a bad guy or somewhere in between, just, you know, I think it's so important. Mm-hmm. Like not judging your characters, just gonna let them yeah, be themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? We're in this and we're also in this place right now too, where it's very easy to where it's very easy to impose a kind of uh morality, you know, right. or political correctness, or um, you know, especially in period pieces. I, you know, I just read um I just read this article from this uh uh from this film critic who is kind of criticizing the Coen brothers new movie for, for the, the women roles in it. And, and, you know, um, I was rushing out the door. I didn't read the article. It could be very smart. Um, but it just kind of got me thinking like, well, you have to stay true to the world that you're writing in. Yeah. And, and if it's a period piece, you know, you can't impose a kind of modern sensibility on that period. Um, and sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's hard to write, you know, the truth, the, the ugliness of, uh, you know, of these things. <clears throat> um, but I think being objective is is just the most important thing, you know, when you're writing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's something I really hope doesn't go by the wayside in this era of very heightened political correctness that people don't start downwriting the authenticity of certain characters because they want to be politically correct. Like again, going back to Tarantino, when I watched Reservoir Dogs not even that long ago, most of those characters are pretty racist and sexist and you hear their dialogue. And, but it's, those are those characters. Those who these guys were. They're not exactly heroized, but yeah, the characters, some of these characters are a little ignorant and a little racist and, they're not being portrayed as good guys. They're bad guys. But some of that dialogue is very politically incorrect, but it feels so authentic to these guys. It's just part of who they are for the most part. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it goes – look, I mean, some of my favorite writers are like George V. Higgins, you know. Um, Thompson. Yeah, I mean, but in this case, like that street writing, that kind um, of like Richard Price, uh, George Pelicanos, uh, that, yeah. that kind of – you know, and these, there's a casual racism, and it comes from ignorance, but right. – um, but I hear, you know, I'm from, uh, I'm from Jersey, you know, I, I like there, I'm, I'm Italian American. I mean, I've heard a lot of shit like that and it's, and it's, and it, a lot of these people, they just don't know any better. And, and, you know, um, it could be alarming, like when you hear it, when you, you know, when you hear these things, but it's also, you want to write with the most authenticity possible. Right. Um, and that's why I admire people like, like Scorsese and like Tarantino, you know, because they get it, they get the way these people talk yeah yeah that makes all the difference as far as the character's authenticity cool last uh last few questions so you you mentioned that you guys had gone to film school in retrospect is that a move that you recommend for for young aspiring filmmakers Uh, it's tough it's tough we can argue either side of that you know it's tough because we're both dealing with student loans you know so it's really tough to come from you know um hundred percent either way. I think that I, I think I could make the case that it's important. You know, it's the reason I met David, I think I probably, mm-hmm. or, you know, maybe I would have taken longer to meet him, but um, it's, it's, it's great because it's a, it's a safe space to try and fail. You know, we made a bunch of short films. We were on, you know, SVA, especially where we went is almost like a trade school. We were in class, you know, a few weeks in loading 16 millimeter Bolex cameras and shooting film 
very cool, you know, like really, really hands-on. And that's sort of where I figured out that I wanted to direct, you know, because oh, nice. before that I thought I wanted to edit and then, and then I got on set for the first time, you know what I mean? So you, right. you're able to try, try and fail and try again and, and uh, practice working with people. But, you know, I don't know. It's tough because you can also do that on your own if you have the right people around and if you have the right resources, which, you know, are easier and easier to get these days. I mean, where do you stand today on it, David? Because I think this changes for us day by day. Yeah. Well, um, keeping up with, um, with the theme here, I'm going to go back to Tarantino. I love, I love the quote he said, uh, back like when he was doing Reservoir Dogs or maybe Pulp Fiction, but very early in his career when he said, you know, if you truly love cinema, you can't help but make a great movie. Um, and it doesn't matter about all the stuff you learn in film school. Well, yeah, that's true. I think that's very true. Um, in terms of, you know, aesthetics, um, in terms of art, you know, uh, there's some guys there's, I, I belong to a video store over in, in Culver city called cinephile. And I speak to these guys who, who work there and I'm just like, guys, if you have scripts, like give them to me because they're going to be good. I know they're going to be good. Okay. Like just the way they're talking about these movies. Um, so, so I do really truly believe that. Um, I don't think I learned anything about my voice or about the art um, that I wouldn't have learned on my own just from doing it. I think the important thing about going to film school uh, is the nuts and bolts of it all, you know, like teach us how to teach, teach the kids how to break down a budget, teach them how to, you know, make a lookbook and, and, and go out to investors and, and, you know, teach them the things that are, you know, learnable right. because art, you know, it's subjective and I'm not going to, if I make something, I go back and the teacher tells me it's shit. It, it doesn't mean anything. Um, so I would focus, if I had a film school, I, I really, I think I would focus more on the business aspect, which was lacking sadly at the school we went to school of visual arts. I would find a program that, that, uh, that is mostly on producing or maybe cinematography, something that's practical. Yeah. Like what you're saying, it's hard to be in a classroom and teach directing because, you know, like you can, you know, what everyone has a different style of directing and everyone's different. It's really like, you know, it's very subjective. So. Yeah. Yeah. But it, you know, in this, in this time where, you know, it's all kind of DIY with these indie films, like you're never, even if you're just a director, you're never going to regret knowing how a budget is broken down. Right. I think that, you know, knowing all the departments only helps you. So yeah, SVA was sadly lacking in the nuts and bolts. It was purely, hey, go out and make your art projects. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So when it comes to directing, writing, filmmaking, there's a lot of resources out there. There's a lot of courses. There's a lot of books, a lot of which are written by people who have never done it before. And a lot are just a whole, the whole mar that entire market is just flooded with so much bullshit. But that being said, were there any formidable resources or books that you guys got into that really helped you along the way, either creatively or from a business perspective? Well, I kind of feel like you. I feel like you need to really be cautious about all these gurus out there. You know, it's definitely its own industry. And, you know, I don't see many of those people as like working professionals. You know, I think a lot of people are trying to sell you the magic, you know, ingredients, you know, and it's just it's I think it's. I don't, you know what I mean? It's yeah, like, I mean, you, know, you have to start off really respecting their work for one. I mean, if look, if Tarantino wrote a book, I'd read it. <laughs> I like yeah. reading the from yeah, I like reading the books from directors. There's some really good ones out there and writers too. Um, yeah, Walter Murch has a good yeah. book, and and you know, um, Sidney Lumet has a good book. Right. Um, you know, you take it with a grain of salt because everyone has their different styles. But for me, if I'm going to read a book on how to do something, I really need to be like, well. Well, hey, it's written by Sidney Lumet. He knows a thing or two. Yeah, right. Um, uh, but honestly, I think, and I said this in the last podcast, we are uh, we are lacking in in film history right now. It's not part of the cultural conversation. Uh, I think that in order to be a filmmaker, you really need to go back and watch every movie you can get your hands on, different time periods, different genres, explore director's work, things go out of your comfort zone, you know, watch genres that maybe you you wouldn't normally watch. <clears throat> um, and and because look, if everyone is just watching the same stuff, we're all going to be influenced by the same stuff. Right. Uh, and it's going to be this kind of incestuous, like boring, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm so tired of, of this, like, uh, uh, 
this nostalgia we have for whatever, you know, like um, the Stranger Things type of nostalgia. Right. It's getting out of control. Yeah, I'm very tired of it. And it's like, why don't I see movies that are influenced by the, you know, uh, the 40s? You know, I mean, that would be really cool. Uh, So I think that everyone just needs to dig deeper. I I think, um, like I said, when I talk to these video store guys, I know their movies are going to be good because because they're 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 like they're so inspired by these little offbeat gems, you know, Um, and uh, and it goes for reading too. I just like my whole life, I never stopped. I always have a book I'm reading. Stephen King has a good book. Yeah, Stephen King has a great book on writing. Yeah, I love that one. Yeah, yeah. Um, That's actually the best. That and I like Ray Bradbury's Zen and the Art of Writing. Um, But. yeah, I think I like ones that aren't didactic. You know, I don't like yeah. Save the Cat. I don't like when they say you need to have this on this page. And, right. you know, I, I like when it's just more like, hey, here's the way I do things. Maybe it works for you. Maybe it doesn't. Gotcha. Very cool. Yeah, the Stephen King book is actually also a lot of fun to listen to because it's him yeah. doing the narration. And yeah, I think there's some important stuff in there. But yeah, that book is just pure gold. Yeah, I revisit it every couple of years. It really is inspiring. He's such an inspiration. Yeah, no, he's pretty amazing. Just, I mean, looking at the prolific body of work that's out there, it's, and then you figure out how he does it. It's 2,000 words a day. Simple as that. Goddamn. Blasting ACDC. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I do that with Metallica. So, um, second to last question Um, hypothetical, starry eyed kid who's out there who's got a great script. He's rewritten it three times. He feels like it's ready to go. Has no contacts in the industry. What's his first step? We were those kids. We don't have any connections. We don't, <laughs> you know, we well, but there's not. A, maybe there's three alumni in uh, LA. You know, we don't have connections, and you just cold email people. Like you know, it's like it's crazy, and you have to risk being that crazy person that comes out of left field. But like, hey, man, like that's what you know. We're in a crazy industry. Just just find people whose work speaks to you, and who who are produ- who's behind that work. Who are the producers right. who are championing like other young directors or whatever? And um, take a shot in the dark. You never know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, find uh, like-minded people. You know, you don't want to go out. If you have a horror script, you don't want to go out to the guy who makes romantic comedies. Um, right. You know, find the people that are making your kinds of movies. And then I do think the cream rises. You know, I think if you have something really good, um, it, will, it will eventually uh, get made. Or Howard. Uh, Howard Barish, the producer of Hospitality, you know, he has an emerging artist slate. So he's kind of setting up opportunities for first time or in my case, second time uh, filmmakers. And I think these people exist. You just have to find them. Awesome. Very cool. So what's next for you guys? Um, we're working on a couple of things. We have a, a heist movie that we don't want to go too much in detail with because we're still writing it. Um, but uh, just, you know, just always writing, always being open to opportunity. I mean, we definitely want to want to continue. I think I think going up to the next budget level will be nice. You know, these these two movies have been ultra low and I think we've kind of paid our dues. Um, so while I'm not talking about blockbusters, I think like a million dollars would be cool. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Well, guys, this was, uh, this was a real pleasure and a whole lot of fun. And the uh, movie was really fantastic. So huge congratulations. Likewise. And, uh, thank, thank you so much. So much. Uh, of course, I'll tell, uh, tell everybody I know to go check it out. Cool. Really appreciate that. All right. Like I said, that conversation was loaded with a lot of insights for indie filmmakers. So let's start extracting the key learnings from that conversation. Number one, if you can't afford rehearsals, hire existing chemistry among actors. Chemistry between actors is a very important asset and is typically achieved during the rehearsal process. When making Reanimator, Stuart Gordon extensively rehearsed the entire script night after night for weeks with his cast as if it was a play. It helped that his cast consists of former stage actors. But for me, one of the things that makes Reanimator so good and so magical and makes it hold up today is all of these characters have great on-screen chemistry and they're very rehearsed among each other and it just it has 
character nuance that just really, really works. From what I understand, this was entirely achieved by Stuart Gordon's insistence on rehearsing the entire movie from beginning to end. It got all of the characters in sync and in line with each other and enabled the characters to have a lot of chemistry, which is why it makes a low-budget gore fest like Reanimator hold up to today. Given the low-budget nature of indie filmmaking, you can't always find the time to rehearse, however. Therefore, consider hiring actors who have an existing relationship. This is exactly what Nick and David did with two of their key actors in hospitality. Emmanuel Chiquiri, I can't pronounce anybody's goddamn last name, and J.R. Bourne knew each other for literally decades. Chemistry always translates on screen and strengthens the believability of your character's relationships and therefore strengthens the movie. So if you can't build chemistry, hire pre-existing chemistry between actors who have either worked together on previous productions or are close friends. Number two, find peripheral jobs. When he was raising money for his first film, David's casting director offered him a job as his assistant. Working in casting further enabled David to make relevant connections and get to know the inner workings of casting, filmmaking, and producing, which translated into priceless industry knowledge that helped him along his way. Rather than picking a job outside of the industry you want to be in, find ways to work within it so that those years can be productive for the knowledge they can provide and the relationships they can solidify. Number three, and this is huge, just shoot already. Nick said that the best advice he got when he was trying to film his first movie was to go film his first movie. In the throes of fundraising for their first feature, No Way to Live, Nick and David realized that the magic budget number they were aiming for wasn't entirely necessary and that they needed to get production underway immediately. The momentum signaled to other producers that they were the real deal and it also added a sense of urgency to their producer pitches, which helped them get their investment decisions made faster. This is huge and it's something that Bill Lustig speaks about in my interview with him about Maniac. Anyway guys, hope you enjoyed this interview. I sure did. If you enjoyed it, it would mean the world to me if you could share this episode on social media. And don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen. Thank you again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. We scare because we care. We care.